Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. You know the light bulb jokes, the ones that have an ever-revolving cast of characters trying to change the light bulb, like this one. How many existentialists does it take to change a light bulb? What light bulb? Well, the punchline says something about the person that's changing the light bulb. And there are a bunch of versions of the joke with social workers. One of my favorites goes something like this. How many social workers does it take to change a light bulb? Only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. And that brings us to the topic of today's podcast, Prochaska and DiClemente's Stages of Change Model. This model describes five stages that people go through on their way to change. Pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. The model assumes that although the amount of time an individual spends in a specific stage varies, everyone has to accomplish the same stage-specific tasks in order to move through the change process. Now, there's an unofficial sixth stage that's variously called relapse, recycling, or slipping, in which an individual reverts to old behaviors. Examples include having a beer after a period of sobriety or smoking a cigarette a year after quitting. And slipping is so common that it's considered normal. And social workers are encouraged to be honest with clients about the likelihood of backsliding or reverting to old behaviors once the change process has started. Not because we expect our clients to fail, but because it normalizes the experience, takes away some of the sense of failure and shame, and sets them back up on the road to change. Although the stages of change model was identified and developed during a study of smoking cessation, the model has been applied to and studied with numerous biopsychosocial problems, including domestic violence, HIV prevention, and child abuse. The stages of change model is just one component of the transtheoretical model of behavior change. It's called the transtheoretical model because it integrates key constructs from other theories. The transtheoretical model describes stages of change, the process of change, and ways to measure change. In today's podcast, I'm going to focus on the stages of change component of the transtheoretical model. If you're interested in learning more about the broader transtheoretical model, there are dozens of resources online and in print. The University of Rhode Island's Cancer Prevention Research Center website has a clear and concise overview of the TTM. I've posted the link to that description on the Social Work Podcast website. If you're looking for a social work-specific application of the transtheoretical model, there's an excellent chapter in the second edition of the Social Worker's Desk Reference on the transtheoretical model and child abuse and neglect by Prochaska and Prochaska. Now, the purpose of this podcast is to provide a brief overview of the five stages of change and what intervention approaches are most appropriate at each stage of change. I drew on a number of resources in the preparation of this podcast, including a chapter on the stages of change and motivational interviewing by DiClemente and Velasquez in Miller and Rolnick's second edition of their book, Motivational Interviewing, a 2002 article by Norcross and Prochaska from the Harvard Mental Health Letter called Using the Stages of Change, and the chapter by Prochaska and Prochaska in the second edition of the Social Worker's Desk Reference that I just mentioned. All of these references can be found on the podcast website at http colon slash slash socialworkpodcast.com. In today's podcast, I'll talk about how to figure out what stage someone is in 
and identify a couple of interventions that are most effective for the person in that stage. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about interventions because there's a major treatment approach called motivational interviewing that addresses dozens of intervention techniques. Along the way, I'll provide examples of things that social workers can say to other people in different stages of change. And I've drawn most of my examples from situations other than addictions, in particular how stages of change can be used to understand parents involved with child welfare. Now, I've done this because the stages of change model was developed out of addictions research, and there are a lot of examples with addictions. Since the stages of change is applicable to behaviors other than addictions, I wanted to focus on some of those examples. I end the podcast with a brief critique of the model. Stage 1. Pre-contemplation. People in pre-contemplation do not see their behaviors as a problem, and therefore see no need to change. This is sometimes called the ignorance is bliss stage. Clients in the pre-contemplation stage have traditionally been thought of as resistant to change. You might be thinking, well, if somebody doesn't see their behaviors as a problem, and they're not interested in changing, then why would I need to know how to work with them? After all, they're not likely to be in treatment. Well, it's true that research has found that a lot of people in pre-contemplation never present for treatment. It also seems that between 50 and 60% of people in treatment are in the stage of pre-contemplation. And these include any client who's pressured or coerced into services. Examples might include the mother whose child has been removed by the state. Um, you know, because it was her partner who abused the child and not her, she doesn't necessarily see how her behaviors would need to be changed. However, the state, and possibly others, see her parenting as neglectful and not adequate to justify returning the child to her care. Another example is the child who's brought for services by a parent because of problems in schools or at home. If you ask the child, it's everybody else who has a problem, the teachers, the other kids, or even the parents. Other examples include clients who are in treatment because they were court-ordered, required by employers, or even by their partners to seek treatment. In all of these situations, there's someone else who recognizes a problem and has the power to make the person enter treatment against his or her will. Norcross and Prochaska call these clients uninformed. It's possible that these clients tried changing their behaviors in the past but were unsuccessful. Because the change didn't work or didn't stick, they now see change as unrealistic or impossible and therefore not worth pursuing. Norcross and Prochaska call these clients underinformed. And examples might include people who have tried to give up smoking or drinking, people who have tried to leave abusive relationships, youth who have tried and failed to leave gangs, or even have failed to be successful at school. So, the group of people who have never seen their behaviors as problems are considered uninformed, and the group of people who have seen their behaviors as problematic in the past but are not currently interested in changing are called underinformed. Now, neither group is interested in changing their current behaviors. Assessment. Norcross and Prochaska suggest assessing pre-contemplation by asking if the person is considering making change in the next six months. If they agree to statements like, well, I guess I have faults, but there's nothing really that I need to change, and as far as I'm concerned, I don't have any problems that need changing, then they're in pre-contemplation. Prochaska and Prochaska note that people in pre-contemplation and maintenance believe that their behaviors do not need changing, but for very different reasons. So, it's important to find out why. The parent who says, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm no worse than anyone else, so why should I change? 
is telling you that there's no problem and therefore no reason to change. This parent is in pre-contemplation. In contrast, the parent who says, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm so much better than I used to be, and I'm really trying hard not to fall back into my old ways of behaving, is telling you that he or she changed the problematic behavior and is trying to maintain the change. This parent is in maintenance. Now, if the difference between the two stages is a little confusing, no worries. It'll make more sense by the time I finish the podcast. Just remember, there are only two stages in which someone doesn't see a problem, pre-contemplation and maintenance. In the other stages, contemplation, preparation, and action, the person sees a problem. Intervention Clinicians have to tailor their interventions to match the client's stage of change. For people in pre-contemplation, research has found that it can be helpful to increase awareness about the problem. For a parent involved in child welfare, the mere presence of protective services can sometimes be enough to increase awareness. Another intervention is to move people emotionally. I ran a group for parents trying to reunify with their children who had been removed by protective services. And one of the first assignments asked of parents was to write about the abuse or neglect from the child's perspective. This assignment was often very emotional and for many parents helped to move them from being in a place of defensive about what they had done or not done to a place of feeling really sad and remorseful. They moved from believing they didn't have a problem to seeing that they did have a problem. The emotional shift was key in getting them to move toward permanent change in their parenting behaviors because they were able to acknowledge a problem. Prochaska and Prochaska mentioned three other interventions that can be used with pre-contemplators, including discussing the benefits of change, encouraging the individual to look at the consequences of what's happening now, and pointing out discrepancies between the way the individual would like to be and the way they are. So, let's say you do these interventions, and your client starts saying things like, yeah, I guess that's a problem, or, you know, I'm sure I would be better if I didn't do that. Well, then they've moved out of pre-contemplation and are in stage two, contemplation. The second stage is called contemplation. In this stage, people recognize a problem and are contemplating a change, but haven't yet committed to changing. For example, you want to lose weight and have looked into joining a gym but haven't yet signed up. People in contemplation are sitting on the fence. Part of them wants to change, but an equally compelling part of them wants to stay the same. When you're sitting on the fence, we say you are ambivalent about change. The contemplation stage is all about ambivalence. Prochaska and Prochaska note that people can stay in contemplation for a very long time, because change is tough. It's hard to take that first step. Chronic contemplators spend a lot of time thinking and not much time doing. This is in part because contemplators struggle to understand their problems, to see its causes, and to think about possible solutions. You can assess for contemplation by listening to statements like, I know I have a problem, but I'm not really sure I want to do anything about it, or I'm not really sure what I can do about it. For example, a parent in the child welfare system might say something like, I know I can do better by my kids, but I'm not really sure how. Once you've established that your client is ambivalent, then you can decide what types of interventions are most appropriate. The most important thing to remember about intervening with someone in contemplation is that they're evaluating the pros and cons of change, but haven't yet decided to change. If you start making suggestions about how they should change, 
The part of your client that wants things to stay the same will bring up all the reasons why change is not possible. The last thing you want to do is to have your client talk themselves into not changing their dysfunctional behaviors. Miller and Rolnick call the social worker's instinct to fix the situation the writing reflex. So, how do you talk with your clients so they talk themselves into change? Prochaska and Prochaska suggest a number of interventions, including talking with your client about the pros and cons of changing, also called the decisional balance technique, pointing out the discrepancy between how your client would like to be and how they are, also known as developing discrepancy, and instilling hope. Pros and cons. For the parent involved with child welfare, you can ask, what are the benefits of changing your approach to parenting? What problems do you see with changing? Your client might respond by saying, well, one of the benefits is that I'll get my kids back and child welfare will be out of my life. And one of the problems with changing is that, you know, my kids only respond to spanking. And I've tried timeout and it doesn't work, so I'm never going to be able to control my kids without being able to spank them. You also want to explore the pros and cons of maintaining the status quo, also known as staying the same. You can ask, what reasons can you come up with for not changing your parenting style? What are the downsides of keeping your parenting style the same? And you can imagine some of the responses. The next technique is developing discrepancy. You can confront clients in this stage and expect to have some impact but you have to focus on the discrepancy between how they would like to be and how they are. For example, you can say to the parent involved with child welfare, you say that getting your kids back are your number one priority, but you've missed the last two supervised visitations. Since actions speak louder than words, you're telling me that being with your kids is not your first priority. Now, that might sound harsh, but it points out the discrepancy between the way the parent wants to be and the way they are. Your client's not likely to be motivated to change if they don't see a difference between how they would like to be and how they are. Another way of developing discrepancy is by providing your client with education about how things could be, by using things such as books or videos that illustrate new behaviors. This kind of information is useless in pre-contemplation because people don't see a problem, but it works pretty well in contemplation because they've partially bought into the idea that they want to change, but are not sure how. The third intervention is instilling hope. Now, this is essential because people in contemplation have a voice inside saying, change is too hard, it's not worth it, and as bad as things are now, it's easier than changing. When you instill hope that your client can change, it supports the voice in your client that says, I don't like how things are going. I want to change. Let's say you have a client that's starting to say, you know, I really think that I do have a problem and I'd like to do something about it. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but I'd really like to do something about it. Well, then your client is leaving contemplation and moving into the third stage called preparation. The third stage is called preparation. In this stage, people have decided to change their dysfunctional behaviors within the next month. People in preparation have taken little steps towards changing their behavior. They're testing the waters. Those little steps might have failed or they might have worked, but they haven't resulted in the kind of behavior change that the client wants. For example, you want to lose weight. You've said no to dessert for the last few months and even dusted off a workout tape. 
but you haven't lost any weight and don't have any comprehensive plan and find yourself mostly engaged in the old behaviors even though you don't want to. Assessment. When you assess for preparation, you want to listen for statements like, I really want to change because, and I wish I could just figure out how to... Prochaska and Prochaska suggest that a parent involved with the child welfare system might indicate preparation by making statements like, I have questions for my caseworker about how to parent differently, and if I don't change, I'll never be the parent I want to be. Because your client has already taken small steps towards change but hasn't been successful, you want to find out how much support he or she has to make the change, and if he or she has the skills needed to make the change. For example, Your client wants to stop spanking her children but lacks the social support to do that. Her friends and family all spank and believe it's an appropriate intervention. This mom has no support to parent differently. Furthermore, because she has no examples of how to discipline without spanking, she lacks the skills to follow through. For example, when you ask how she might discipline her child without spanking, she comes up short. Prochaska and Prochaska suggest four interventions for people in preparation. Encourage your client's commitment to change, support self-efficacy, generate a plan, and set action goals. You can encourage your child welfare client by saying something like, Your decision to change how you parent tells me that you're dedicated to not only getting your kids back, but also to strengthening your family to prevent future abuse and neglect. When you generate a plan and set action goals, you want to make sure you're setting up your client for success. If you've identified deficits in supports and skills, an appropriate plan would be to establish these as part of the goals for change. You don't want to set up your client with unreasonable expectations for finding friends and family who will support their new behaviors, or else they'll move away from wanting to make the change and back into wondering if it's worth it. The same is true for new skills. You can set up small and attainable goals for your in-office services so that at the end of every session, they feel like, well, something's been accomplished and they're one step closer to their goal. Social workers should be aware, though, that just because a client is preparing to make change doesn't mean that they're willing to participate in the program that the social worker has identified for the client. For example, I might be prepared to join a gym to lose weight, but as a man in my late 30s, I'm not going to join Curves or Lady Fitness. So it's important not to confuse willingness to change with an automatic buy-in of existing programs or services. So let's say you've encouraged your client's commitment to change, you've supported their self-efficacy, you've generated a plan and set up action goals, and your client is subtly saying things like, I'm going to put this action plan into place. I'm going to start doing these things. Well, Then your client has moved from preparation into between one day and 180 days of action. The fourth stage is called action. In this stage, people have changed their dysfunctional behavior at least one day and no more than 180 days. People in the action phase have put into practice the plan developed in the preparation phase. They're consciously choosing new behaviors being confronted with challenges to the new behaviors, and consequently gaining new insight and developing new skills. For example, the mother who no longer uses corporal punishment tells her social worker, You know, in the last few weeks of not hitting, I've realized that it's easier to hit than to not hit. When I'm tired and the kids are driving me crazy, it takes all I got not to hit them. 
I really appreciate my one friend who doesn't spank. She's so good to be around. People in the action stage are enthusiastic and motivated. When social work students and most of the public think about what it would be like to do therapy, they usually imagine working with people in the action phase. Prochaska and Prochaska noted that most treatment programs are built around the action phase, even though only a small percentage of their clients are actually in action. Now, having said that, I'm going to share a brief story about a client that I had that was in action. A couple years ago, I worked with a woman who was six months pregnant, and she came in for services because she was really upset with her husband. She was so upset that she was thinking about leaving the marriage. It turned out that she had deep-seated resentment against her husband, and it was clear that without addressing those resentments, she wasn't going to be able to continue in this relationship. So we made a six-week plan to resolve her resentment, to have her let go of those feelings of ill will that she held towards her husband. And every week she came back, and she had done the homework. And every session, we got that much closer to resolving her resentment. And then at the end of six weeks, she said, you know what? I no longer have any resentment towards my husband. I still disagree with some of the things he's done, but I really see that I can be in this relationship, have this baby, and raise a family with him. Now, when services ended, she had been doing her new behaviors for only a couple of weeks, and so she was still in action. If her behaviors had continued beyond 180 days, then we could consider her to be in the stage of maintenance. Okay, so that was a brief digression into my former clinical practice. But um, you might be wondering, okay, so how do I assess for action? Well, social workers should listen for statements that indicate both an acknowledgement of a prior problem and new behaviors. Again, with a child welfare example, a father might say, I'm doing something about the behaviors that got me involved with child welfare in the first place. Intervention in the action stage includes a lot of verbal reinforcement and supporting the person's belief that he or she can sustain the change. In motivational interviewing, this is called supporting self-efficacy. And you want to identify specific behaviors that your client has changed and connect them with the changes you're seeing in their life. For example, if a mother has changed her parenting style and you notice that her children are responding better as a result, you can make encouraging statements that explicitly support the mother's ability to change her behavior. For example, you could say something like, I noticed that during supervised visitation, you're using more encouraging statements with your kids and are less likely to withdraw when they start fighting. I've also noticed that ever since you've been doing that, your kids have brought up the subject of coming home more often and are more excited about the family getting back together. They also seem genuinely happy when you pay them a compliment rather than ignoring them. All of these things suggest that as hard as it is to parent differently, you're really making a lot of changes and they seem to be making a big difference for your children and your family. The fifth stage is called maintenance. In this stage, people have been engaged in the new behavior for at least six months and are committed to maintaining that new behavior. You know your clients in maintenance when they report there's no problem and are able to describe how their current behavior is different from their past dysfunctional behavior. Intervention in the maintenance stage looks pretty different than in the previous four stages. You'll probably be meeting less frequently. Your conversations will revolve around how your client's sustaining their commitment to the new behavior. You'll talk about how he or she might cope with relapse and avoid relapse. 
Clients in this stage will tend to be confident about their ability to maintain the change. You can help your client to identify when they have become overconfident and consequently might put themselves in a position to relapse. As an example, I was working with a gay man in his late 40s who reported 12 months of sobriety. I knew this client was in maintenance because he described his past behaviors and distinguished them from his behaviors from the past year. He was confident about his ability to stay sober, but had decided to go into therapy as he started to get back into the dating scene. He was looking for a committed relationship that was supportive of his drug and alcohol-free lifestyle. And in our first session, he said that he could think of three places he could find a partner, and each place presented some challenge to his sobriety. Bars and clubs, the AA meeting where he'd been attending, and online dating. We talked about how frequent contact with his AA sponsor would be one way of demonstrating commitment to sobriety, as well as a source of support while stepping out into situations that might trigger a relapse. For example, we talked about what he would do if he met a man online who suggested they get together for a drink. Well, my client was clear that he wouldn't drink and was confident that he could be around someone who was drinking, but had concerns about how his sobriety might look to his date. So we addressed situations that might trigger him to want to drink, including the desire to take the edge off of meeting someone new, the desire to conform to social expectations, and the fear of not being able to perform sexually. We came up with a plan that included support by his sponsor, self-affirming statements, and an honest talk with his date. I also had him describe what his life was like prior to becoming sober, including losing his job and being homeless for a period. I contrasted that with his current situation and emphasized how he could easily lose it all. Since he was in maintenance, emphasizing these differences served to reinforce his commitment to sobriety and added a sense of urgency to the plan. So, we've covered the five stages of change, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Now, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, there's an unofficial sixth stage, relapse. This is the falling off the wagon stage. A relapse is defined as resuming the old behaviors. So, you have to actually engage in new behaviors, which means you're in action or maintenance, before you can relapse into old behaviors. And the longer someone's in maintenance, the more devastating relapse can be to the person and to those around him or her. People who relapse often feel disappointed and frustrated. Watching a client go through relapse can be painful for the provider. But, as I mentioned before, it shouldn't be unexpected. There are a couple of specific areas to address when intervening with someone in the relapse stage. The first is to find out what triggered the relapse. Have your client describe the moment he or she engaged in the old behavior, and then work backward to find out how he or she got to that point. Next, you can review your client's motivation for engaging in new behaviors and identify what barriers exist that might prevent your client from getting back on the wagon. If you've been working with your client for a while, you can review the motivations that you identified in a previous stage. You can also listen for new motivators. Sometimes people in relapse gain insight into why they do what they do and are able to come up with new motivators as well as barriers. The third area to address is your client's coping strategies. Clearly, his or her coping strategies were insufficient to maintain the change, so you'll want to help him or her identify and implement new coping strategies. 
Since your client is likely to be feeling like a failure for relapsing, acknowledge his or her feelings and then reframe the relapse as an opportunity to learn and become stronger. You can say something like, you know, I realize you feel like a failure and I understand why, but I want to suggest that perhaps this relapse is a wake-up call to some of the problems with the strategies that you've been trying to use and an opportunity to fix them and improve on them. Now, the client that I talked about who presented in maintenance had a relapse during our treatment. Now, although our sessions had gone well in the beginning, he had been unsuccessful finding a partner. One of the people he met online had invited him to go sailing, and he ended up drinking a wine cooler on the boat. Although he stopped after one drink, he felt horrible about himself and his recovery. When we talked about what happened, he said that he'd been out on the boat all day without eating, and that he was so grateful to have company that he threw caution to the wind, and that he was exhausted from being in the sun all day. He said that he hadn't taken care of his basic needs, and he was hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, the four states that make up the AA acronym HALT. He even said that he thinks his experience has taught him that there should be a fifth basic need that hadn't been met, that he was horny. He laughed and he said that HALT should be renamed HALT. Our intervention addressed his new insight into how he could maintain sobriety and some of the unexpected challenges of improving his romantic life. We came up with a new plan and he implemented it. So here's a quick pop quiz. Given that he was in maintenance, had a relapse, and then implemented a new plan, what stage was he in? If you said action, then you'd be right. Because he had been implementing the new behaviors for between 24 hours and 180 days. Because he was in action, our sessions changed focus somewhat to address the needs of people in the action phase. To review... The stages of change model is a way of thinking about how someone goes about changing his or her behavior. The stages of change model assumes that change takes time, that there are common tasks in each stage, and that by tailoring your intervention to match the stage of change, you will be more successful in helping your client to make lasting change. The stage of change model is the key construct of the broader trans-theoretical model which also includes processes of change and ways to evaluate change. There are five official stages and one unofficial stage. The pre-contemplation stage is the ignorance-is-bliss stage. People in this stage don't see a problem and, consequently, are not interested in changing their behavior. The second stage is contemplation. People in this stage are on the fence. They acknowledge a problem, but aren't really sure of the benefits of changing, and really aren't sure if they outweigh the benefits of staying the same. The third stage is preparation. People in this stage see the problem and are testing the waters. They're taking small steps towards change. The fourth stage is action. People in this stage have identified a plan for changing the behavior and have started to implement it. The fifth stage is maintenance. People in this stage have been engaging in the new behavior for at least six months. And the unofficial sixth stage is relapse. People in this stage have fallen off the wagon and are engaging in the old behaviors. Now, I want to end with some critiques of the model. Like all popular models, the stages of change model has been subject to numerous criticisms. In 2002, 
Julia Littell and colleagues published a review of 87 studies using the stages of change model and concluded that there was no evidence to support the assertion that there are consistent stages of change across a range of situation, problem behaviors, and populations. There's no conclusive evidence that change occurs in stages rather than as a continuous process. And finally, there are no known studies that follow the progression through all five stages. Now, Prochaska and Prochaska in 2009 countered these criticisms, stating that it was misleading to evaluate the stages of change model outside of the broader trans-theoretical model, which they acknowledge has been subject to far fewer studies. In 2004, Adams and White suggested two reasons why the stages of change model might not be applicable to complex behaviors, such as those commonly presented by social service clients. One, the model was developed around changing single behaviors, such as smoking cessation, and does not clearly account for changing multiple related behaviors, such as parenting styles. Two, identifying the stage of change depends almost entirely on client self-assessment, rather than standardized measures. How do I know that my client's in pre-contemplation? She tells me. If I ask my client if they've changed their parenting behavior, they might respond, no, placing them in pre-contemplation, contemplation, or preparation. However, a parenting skills inventory might suggest that changes have occurred in one area, but not another. So, the criticism goes that you might have a parent that is actually in action with one set of parenting behaviors, but is in pre-contemplation about another. The same can be true for people with substance abuse problems. My client, although he had not been drinking for a year, talked about smoking marijuana as a way of calming down. For this client, smoking marijuana was not seen as a problem, but drinking alcohol was. So, is it possible that he was in both maintenance and pre-contemplation at the same time? Well, that's one of the things that the stages of change model doesn't provide a lot of guidance on. Furthermore, some studies have found that self-report statements can place people in different stages within a matter of days and sometimes multiple stages at once. Now, a final note about the stages of change model. It's not the only model that has been developed for explaining how people change behaviors. Connor and colleagues identified four other proposed models, including the health action process approach, the precaution adoption process model, the goal achievement theory, and the model of action phases. The stages of change model, although subject to criticism, remains a widely used model for understanding how people change, assessing a client's readiness for change, and developing programs and interventions that target change behaviors. I hope this podcast has been a useful introduction to the stages of change model and that you continue to think about its applicability for social work, the clients that you serve, and complex behaviors. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.